team so much. By the way, if you would like a ministry that nobody sees until you screw up, um, I would encourage you to, to join our, our sound booth ministry. We have some that are graduating and leaving and no longer going to be back there. And we need some, some folks who would like to take that on as their ministry. I'd encourage you to consider that. Everybody will know you're back there when you screw up. I spent time this week considering our generation, the generation in which you and I live. I looked around, I looked at the state of the church, our community, our nation, our world, and I was thoroughly depressed by the end of Monday. And, um, <laughs> and it got me to thinking about a generation not too long ago where we had individuals like Nate Saint. If you haven't heard some of these names, I'd encourage you to look them up. Individuals like Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, or Roger Yondervan. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Billy Graham, and Richard Wombrandt, just to name a few. Do you remember that generation? Of course you do, because their impact is still having ripple effects. Some have called that generation the greatest generation, for good reason. Because when we look at that generation, we see a generation who took personal responsibility. Something lacking today. They, they were marked by humility. They had a work ethic. They were frugal. They stay committed. Oh, something to be said for commitment. integrity and self-sacrifice you know these are just some of the marks of that great generation and easily like Monday we can dwell on those individuals of the past the times of the past and find ourselves in despair looking around. Truth be told, those individuals had enough to look around and find despair themselves. But they made a choice. As, as we come to our study today in the book of Judges, They very easily could have looked back at the greatest generation. And they could have looked around and been in despair, and they have good reason to be. But it's on the heels of a book like Joshua that declares victorious living, right? I mean, Joshua was an exciting book. I mean, I started Joshua on Monday two weeks ago, and I'm like, this is going to be a good week. I started Judges on Monday, and I'm like, this is going to be a rough week. 
Because as we, we look at that, we come on the heels of Israel's greatest generation. I mean, think about it. They had leadership like Joshua and Caleb. I mean, what leaders to have, right? You look at the leaders of judges and... Well, you look at the leaders of judges and... And you look at them and you look at them and... Well, it's no wonder. I mean, that generation, think about that greatest generation of Israel. And I want us to think about it as we go into the book of Judges. Because this is on the heels of. But as, as this generation is that we see in Judges, we see a generation before them that was tempered and tested. How many of you like testing, times of testing? No hands. We don't, but it's in that, that time of testing in the wilderness that they learned to trust God. It's in your times and my times of testing that we learn to trust God. They were forged in the fires of battle. How many of you went through a spiritual battle this week at all? Oh, now our hands are going up. All right. Yeah, see? It's those times of battle that we are forged and our faith is solidified. That was that greatest generation. The battles they fought, the victories they won. That generation, ironically, was born out of a generation that lacked faith, lacked endurance, lacked a lot of things. But they made a choice. See, they would win battles. They would go forth and understand that God went with them. That they needed to follow God. They made their mistakes. Every generation does. But they learned and they trusted and they obeyed. And then came another generation. Judges says a generation would raise up that didn't no God. What happened? The generation that we look at in the book of Judges are multiple generations. They're defined in a different way. They are defined as forgetting God's truths. They are defined as those who no longer taught the scriptures. To their children and grandchildren. They are marked by pursuing life's desires. I, I, gotta, I gotta say, I am honestly very pleased with a day that showed temperatures of mid-70s after the winter we've had and blue skies. I look out and I'm like, oh my goodness. This is amazing. 
But they were not marked by commitment, rather by pursuing their desires. Joshua, we closed with last week, challenged those in chapter 24. You know how they quickly forgot this challenge. Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord. Fear Him. Look at what He's done. Have a respect and an awe for this God. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If... It is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves today who you will serve, whether the gods which your, your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that generation rallied with Joshua and said, We will serve him too! But they forgot. We can't coast on the shoulders of great generations before us. We definitely stand on their shoulders, but we don't coast on their shoulders. Because we will quickly, quickly fall. We all have a past, but it's never an excuse for disobedience. Don't come and, and seek counsel from God's word or from me and think that your past gives you a past to disobey God. It never does. Judges is written for Israel. Judges is written for you and me. Because as we look back on this generation that we see in Judges, it should be a mirror for us to evaluate where we stand with God. I want to give you an overview of this book. We're not going to focus on where you think we would focus today. But the book begins in, in really three segments. And the way it's written is to really relay a point to Israel. To drive home a lesson that they need to remember, they need to learn. Ironically, the very opening chapter of, of this book defines their failures. Over and over again, they failed to do this. They failed to drive out those who were there. Look at the list of these failures. Judah, you failed to drive out. And it shares, Benjamin, you failed to drive out. Ephraim, Manasseh, you failed to drive out. You're like, isn't that enough? No, it goes on. Zebulun, you failed to drive them out. Asher, you failed to drive them out. 
Neftali, you failed to drive them out. Oh my goodness, even Dan. Failure after failure after failure. I, I think we look sometimes in our own homes and we wonder, what's going on? Why are we struggling? Why are our children not growing up to love God? And the truth is, we have failed to drive out the influences of the world, even within our own homes. God gave them this land. He gave them rest. And he says, now drive out the gods of this land. Drive out the people who worship them. And instead, they welcomed them out, welcomed them in. Failure after failure after failure. We come to the center of the book. And really, the center of the book is just a cycle. Over and over, seven different times. And it's a cycle of, of sin that, that we look at. And we look at seven different judges. And, and I've grown up in churches where these judges were hailed as heroes. As you take a closer look at their lives, oh my goodness, I don't know if that's truly the hero you want your children to be aspiring to. Then you come to the end of the book. Those last four chapters actually occur at the very onset of everything that happens, but the writer chooses to end with those chapters to demonstrate for them the, the moral corruption and the moral temperature of, of the nation of Israel at that time. It's a sad state. They look like a nation. They look like Israel. I mean, they're even doing some of the sacrifices. I mean, they look like something on the outside, but it's sad. But the book of Judges reveals the heart. I think we've grown complacent in today's church where we are very comfortable with looking a certain way and ignoring the heart. And Judges is a mirror to look at our hearts. It's a heart issue. Interestingly, the book of Judges actually covers approximately 400 years. 400 years, and this is, the, this is the history of Israel. But the writer has a purpose for this, to show what the people's hearts were like as a warning not to go back there. Judges chapter 2, the writer, most likely Samuel, we're not for sure, but most likely the book of Judges was written by Samuel. It was written in a time that there was a king. But as he, as he goes through, the, the second chapter is basically a summary of the entire book of Judges. It gives the, the reasoning and the, the, what's going on behind the scenes in this cycle that we're going to look at. Join with me in Judges chapter 2. 
And God himself comes down and declares something to him. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to uh, Bacham. Man, that's, yeah. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said... I will never break my covenant with you. Wow, what a promise. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Can you imagine God himself coming, looking at, let's just narrow this down, at you as a church, and saying, what have you done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and your, their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted their voices and wept. So they named the place Bacham, and they sacrificed to the Lord. Notice they wept. There's no repentance. Oh, we're in trouble. We have time out. <laughs> but not, there's no remorse. No repentance. No recognition of their sin. Stop weeping and repent. Oh, if they had learned that, it says in verse 6, kind of looking back at how this thing began, and it says, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel each went his own inheritance to possess the land. That's what they were to do. But then the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Tim, uh, Timnath, Timnath years. There we go. In the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Gash, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. What a sad statement. And yes, I am reading the whole chapter 2 for you because it's a beautiful summary of this whole book. Listen to what it says. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around 
them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. This statement is repeated time and time and time again in the book of Judges. They did evil in the Lord's sight. It goes on, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers and plundered them and sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then... The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly to the way in which the fathers had walked, obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity for the groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. What grace, what mercy. Honestly, as I read judges, I'm not sure I would have been as merciful as God was. It's a good thing I'm not God, huh? There's many good reasons I'm not God. But it came about when the judges died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Each generation got worse and worse and worse. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will also no longer drive out before them the other nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord or walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. What a tragic, tragic description. In one chapter, we summarize 400 years of the nation of Israel. We look at this cycle, this sin cycle that, that we see in the book of Judges. It, it occurs over and over. It's, they sin, they, they enter into servitude, their supplication, prayers lifted up, and then God gives salvation. And you know what they do? enter into sin again. James, yeah, we're going all the way to the New Testament. James summarizes this beautifully. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, it says this, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. It's something that comes from within. 
Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it gives forth death. Do not be deceived. This cycle that, that we see in the book of Judges is a cycle that is still going on today. Yes, in the nation of Israel. Yes, in America. Yes, in Colorado. Yes, in Parachute. Yes, even in the church. Sin, we fall into disobedience. We're, we're tempted by different situations in life. We're tempted by our own lust and desires. How many of you were tempted this last week? I'll raise both hands here. Okay? You and I will be tempted. Even Jesus himself was tempted. But it stopped there. And the problem for most of us is we just continue in this cycle. The final verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. Such a sad statement. Look at this. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Pause there. No king in Israel. They had a king. They just weren't following him. His name was God Almighty Yahweh. They had a king. They didn't recognize him. They didn't follow him. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That could be the mantra, the, the, the slogan for our country, could it not? Doing what is right in our own eyes. Look at this. Look at this cycle. We, we begin, we see it with sin and pursuing our own desires. Let's be honest, in this world there's so much that's desirable, isn't there? But then we enter into servitude. Do you understand? It, it's easy to see servitude when a nation comes in and enslaves you. But do you realize that your sin, my sin, enslaves us to it? We are in bondage to our sin. And it holds us hostage from the life of freedom that God intends. And then we cry out, supplication. The greatest lie of the enemy is that when you have sinned, when you have fallen, it's slavery of your sin. The enemy says the last thing you are allowed to do is go to God. The enemy loves to say, you are a pitiful individual. Look at the filth of your sin. And he beats you and he beats you with it. He says, don't you dare go to God. Why would he want a pathetic, miserable individual like yourself? When at that very moment, the greatest thing we can do is turn to the only one who can do something about that situation. He says, come. Come. And it's God who gives salvation. 
Seven different times in the book of Judges we see God raise up a judge. Seven different times we see God bring salvation to his people Israel. And truth be told, looking at their circumstances, he is so, so gracious. And we look at those judges, and judges is not what we think as a judge, you know. Order, order, that's not it. It's more of a chieftain, a warrior that God would raise up to lead the people to victory. And we see in the first few that we see and we look at, oh, they're good. And they follow God and they lead the people to follow God. They're not great, but they're good. And then we have some that are, hmm, okay. Gideon's one of them. I mean, my goodness, Gideon, he takes an army of 30,000. God's like, nope, too many. You need to have 300 men so I get the glory. It is amazing throughout the book of Judges, God remains the central character. And God works. And God does an amazing act of, of, of salvation with those 300 men. But Gideon, he's okay because later he, well, he allows even himself to be worshipped. And then there's Jephthah. He was just downright bad. I mean, he does some amazing victories. I mean, God works through these individuals. It blows my mind that he actually wants to use some of these men. But, but Jephthah, I mean, he, he has the mindset of the world around him. He has the audacity to bargain with God. We chuckle at that. We're like, why would you bargain with God? We do it all the time, church. I'll talk about that in a moment. But we bargain with God and we have the audacity to approach him like, like Jephthah did. He says, God, if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice whatever comes to meet me out of my house. And his daughter comes out. And in his corrupt mindset of the world that he is in, he sacrifices his daughter. That's the state of Israel. And you're like, oh my goodness, it can't get any worse. And then you have Samson. Oh, it gets worse. You look at the life of Samson, and there's no distinguishing traits from this judge and the Canaanites in whose land he lives. But God uses him still. It's amazing. Anytime God does something, though, the Spirit of God came upon them. It was the Spirit of God that was working. Each judge, as you go through the book, depicts the, the spiritual condition of, of the nation itself. We see a nation go from good to, to bad to worse. God remains the central character, but we see a moral decline. It's a spiral effect going down. And, and all too often, I, I look at judges, I see this moral decline and this spiral going, and as you go down, you pick up speed. And I look at that and I go, shame on Israel. 
And then God's like, really, Jed? And I can look at different times in my life when I had the same spiral effect occurring in my own heart. The book of Judges closes with a nation that's in just total disarray. It closes showing the spiritual famine of the land. Civil war has broken out. One of the tribes is all but wiped out. Brothers, fighting brothers. And we look at that and go, shame, Israel. I mean, we would never see brothers and sisters in the church fighting, would we? No. We would never see civil war erupt within the family of God, would we now? All too often we do. We see political upheaval. We, we see a nation. This is sad. We see a nation that has no distinguishing differences from the Canaanites in whose land they're living. I'll be honest, you come to the end of, of this book, you read a verse like in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. Is it? The book closes making us wonder if there's any hope for God's people Israel. But remember God. Remember God. He is holy. And we close looking at God today and looking at ourselves. Remember, God is holy. Leviticus 19.2. I love this verse. It's quickly becoming my, my, my life verse. Speak to all the congregations of the sons of Israel and say to them, guys, this is something for the whole nation. He wasn't speaking just to the Levites. Just to the priest, just to the pastor. Speak to the congregation and say, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. What an expectation! What a command. We look at this, this God, we remember God, and we remember He is a holy God. But Israel's forgotten this. And let's be honest, you and I very often throughout the week, even throughout the day, you may even forget this afternoon that God is holy. And when we forget, you and I cease to be holy. God's calling us, you, me, to holiness. Obedience. But the further we, we drift from God, 
The less we remember His holiness and sin and sin and sin, the further we are from Him, the further that memory is away, and the more and more we look like the world and we do evil in the sight of God. How does this happen? Israel, you had a great generation. How does this happen? Church, we had a great generation. The nation, a nation that was marked by following God. How does this happen? Let me ask a couple of questions. First of all, what is important? Don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at your spouse. This is a time for internal reflection. What is important to you? Church. We, we consider church to be a place. Oh, that is the most messed up thinking we can have. It is a people, it is a gathering, it is a fellowship, it is the family of God, it is the bride of Christ. Church! It's so often we have grown comfortable with the outward actions instead of a deep, intimate relationship. What's important? Oh, we use the phrase Christian so flippantly. We even come and think of the church more as a punch card did it, than a passion. What's important? See, when you and I begin to forget who God is, when you and I begin to forget what God has done, then very quickly He becomes undesirable. And our desires, church, demonstrate our value. What do you put value on? Where do you invest your time? Where is your passion? You know what I have very seldom in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ and I, I, I started following him at a young age. Very seldom do I hear within the family of God I can't do that. I need to meet with the church. I need to fellowship with the church. But I could tell you a list of things that are canceled for church or churches canceled for something else. Time and time and time again. Because if we view church as a punch card, oh yeah, we can let that go this week. That's fine. It's 75 degrees out today. <laughs> you know which I'm really proud of you guys. When was the last time you said no to something and told them, listen, I've committed to this because it's valuable 
And then we have those who come back. You know that spiral that we're looking at Israel and going, oh, they come back to God now, right? We do the same thing. I can't tell you how many times there's individuals who come back to church because they're hurt, life is struggling, this is difficulty, or whatever it is. And they, they come back because of that, and praise God they do. But unfortunately, they come back bargaining with God. You know, God, things are difficult in my life right now. I'm going to start coming back to church, and um, well, if, if I do that, I really hope you can take care of this situation for me. Really? Are we in the bargaining game with God? Is our God so small that we come to the table and bargain with Him? I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. What an amazingly flippant way to come to a holy, righteous, almighty Creator God. And then we have those in the church that wonder why our young people are leaving. Why are they leaving the church? Because they see no passion. Because they see no relationship. They see no value. If everything else in life is able to trump gathering together with the, the body of Christ, gathering together to worship God, why would they place value on something that's disregarded time and time again in our lives? We wonder where our young people go. We look at the church around us. We look at the church in America. Honestly, sometimes we can look even within the walls of our own gathering here. And there's times it looks bleak. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to close out with this thought. But God. You know, there's still more books of the Bible after Judges. All of those that are listed in Judges, even Samson, oh my goodness, even Samson, do you realize are written in Hebrews under the chapter of faith on the other side of the cross? I love that picture because we look at these judges and we just shake our head in dismay. But on the other side of the cross, we see faith. Church, it is never too late. God is in salvation. He is the one who gives salvation. It is God who works in your life and my life. Regardless of the leadership, and there is a huge burden put on leadership, but God calls you and me to follow Him. And we look at Scripture, we look at Hebrews, and we see those men, and we go, wow, what a God! We look at Calvary, and we go, wow, what a God! We look at a nation that deserved punishment, and we see His grace, and we say, wow, what a God! And I look in the mirror and I see a man who deserves hell. And I say, wow, what a God. What a God. He's holy. In church, 
It's time we stop playing church and recognize this holy God who calls you and I to be holy because he is holy. Let's pray. Wow. What a God. God, we look at judges. We see you throughout showing and demonstrating your mercy. God, you, their king, failing to acknowledge or follow you as king. Oh, but you sent your son to die on that cross. Who would rise from the dead, king of kings, lord of lords. And we bow our heads in praise and say, wow, what a God. Lord, as we depart here today, I pray that we would stay close. So close that we would recognize, see, feel your holiness. And God, in turn, we would be holy. God, thank you so much for sending your Son that we could live that life that you have called us to live. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.